everybody, I'm Frankie. And I'm Daniel. And welcome to Propagated Podcast. So anyway, welcome to the first episode. Yay! Yay, plants. Super exciting, super fun, even though we're going to be talking about some heavy content, actually, to start with, but... We decided, you know, we got to just start like right in the shit. <laughs> Might as well give you the most depressing portion of the plant knowledge you can get just yeah. like that. Just so you know what you're in for with this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yay. How are you? I've been doing really well. Quarantine sucks, but you know, that's just yeah. kind of life right now. So yeah. getting used to yeah. it. Super excited about starting something new with you. Yeah, I'm super excited. There's more time for plants. Um, I'm glad we're starting this. I just I feel like even if it just ends up you and me talking about plants to each other every week and we have zero listeners, I still think that sounds fun because plants are fascinating and I love them. I mean, absolutely. And I'm we're definitely going to have listeners. Yeah, there are definitely other plant nerds out there and there's such a void for plant content, I feel like, especially with podcasts. And it's kind of like a big it's like a big thing in Asheville too. Like it's there are lots of plant nerds up and coming in Asheville. I've converted several of my friends already. Yeah, we're just slowly, like, we are the blight, and we're slowly taking over the world, (laughs) making everyone into plants. (laughs) Everyone's going to have house plants and outdoor plants and every kind of plant before Someday when I say fun fact, people are going to actually think it's a fun fact. (laughs) (laughs) I took a nap today, and I, like, I don't nap as an adult and I feel like I should because I feel like that's the best part of adulting is being able to nap but every time I do I wake up and I just forget what year it is and like what time it is and I'm so disoriented so I don't know where my brain is at but we're gonna get it going same though I never nap it's a travesty for me when I nap I always come out the other end feeling like some interdimensional being that doesn't know what earth is anymore yeah you're like i'm gonna nap for like 15 minutes and i'm gonna wake up feeling refreshed and then three hours later you're like ah what day is it do i have to go to work (laughs) (laughs) i haven't had to worry about that one in a while but Mm, yeah soon enough i'll have to think about work again i'm sure yeah the world's waking back up well anyways let's talk about plants yeah do you want to lead or would you like me to lead um rock paper scissors for it Ooh, I guess I'm I going first. <laughs> oh, it was it was definitely scissors. Sorry, I got. I believe close. you. I just couldn't see. It. <laughs> cool. Well, I am going to talk about grapes. I love grapes. I'm literally holding an entire bottle of wine as we speak, which I will be sipping through the entirety of this podcast. Perfect. Maybe. I, I mean, it's on it brand. Fast, I mean, absolutely. Because more specifically, I'm talking about how the entire wine industry was almost wiped out. Thank God for whatever you're about to tell us about this. Stop that from happening. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I mean, if I didn't know, you know, like this was way before we were alive. If I never had known about wine, I feel like, you know, you would no big loss. But thinking about it, it's like, man, that's like my drink of choice, really. I mean, I can't say the same. Mine's definitely tequila. Mm. But wine definitely is up there. I love it. Yeah. Really glad it wasn't wiped out by the Phylox era. So first, I'm going to talk about grapes and the vines themselves basically way back imagine yourself in like america 
beginnings of America. Thomas Jefferson has his gardens in Monticello in Virginia. And, okay, I looked up the pronunciation of this because I don't want to get yelled at by anybody, and it is a huge debate. Like, I'm going to go with Monticello because it's recorded that that's what, like, the Jeffersons called it, and that's what all the locals call it. But, like, the one of the TV guides for how to pronounce things said it was Monticello, and I don't like that, so I'm not going to do it. <laughs> But basically, he had his gardens, and they're in America, and they are finding all these grapes. And they're like, ooh, we love wine. We make a lot of wine back in Europe. Um, why don't we try it here? But the problem with these grapes is they are very small, and they are very blue, and they are not juicy. Not juicy. They are mostly all seeds and skin. I like yes. my juicy and thick grapes. Oh, yes. You need the thick grapes for wine <laughs> with two C's. So basically... Um, this is because natural selection. In Europe, grapes were bred for wine, basically. They wanted the juicy, thick grapes for their wine. Whereas in America, the birds were doing the selection. And they were like, we like the blue ones because we can see them. And we like the tiny ones because we can fit them in our mouths. So. Hell yeah, natural selection. That's the way <laughs> it works. makes sense. Yeah, if I were a bird, I'd, that's what I would pick too. Um, but, you know, not so great for making wine. So they, they start bringing these uh, wine vines into their garden and they're trying to make wine out of it and nothing is working. And the entire time, um, from the late 1700s to the early 1800s, they never make a single glass of wine. Wait, 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 wait. So you're saying for a hundred years, they were not able to produce a single glass of wine? Yeah, give or take, you know. I didn't didn't research the dates much closer than that. That's great. I'm just saying that's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. And even the European vines that they brought over, that they were like, okay, this isn't working. Screw this. We're trying again with something we know. We were trying with the Fiat grapes. And all of them started dying. Every single one. And they're like, what the fuck? Like, we just want a fucking glass of wine. Jesus. I don't want to have to import it from freaking England. So, or France or wherever they were importing from. And um, so then they started like shipping these American vines for whatever reason, they're like, oh, everything's dying and nothing's working. Let's just ship some of these to France and see what happens. So that was, turns out, bad idea because these vines contained the phylloxera. Bum, bum, bum. And that's really what my episode's about. Not grapes, but the phylloxera. Phylloxera, <laughs> killer of wine. Yes. Oh, yes. So it was introduced to France in 1859. And by 1872, it was all over Europe, Victoria, New South Wales, Australia, all kinds of stuff. Cuttings everywhere. They're like, here, have these grapevines. Nothing bad will happen. (laughs) Spoiler alert, bad things happened. (laughs) (laughs) These poor little baby vines did not have any natural protection. They just started withering up and dying, just completely wiped. it it brought about though because most of the wine vines you know shriveled up and died within years um it did bring about the first international agreement for preventing pest spread which is pretty cool and still used a lot today i think that's really Um, fun because also not to interrupt you obviously but when we go back in to my when i start my section we're definitely going to be talking also about the international arrangements made because, ba-ba-bum, 
similar time periods and Ooh, the international stage was similar for both of our plights. Look at this first episode and we're already amazing at this. I'm so proud of us. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like you sent me the same article you researched. <laughs> Don't tell all of our secrets, Frankie. That's ridiculous. Uh, you know, I'll do what I want. <laughs> Autonomy. Hell yeah. Yeah. This economy and this economy? Well, I said autonomy, but economy too. Um, That's the... You, you see where my brain is at right now, you know? All this quarantine, it's just getting to me. It's getting to me like the Phylox era got to the Vine Vines. Hey, bringing it back. <laughs> At least we know your story has a good ending. Um, yeah. I mean, at least as I yeah. drink Considering wine. we're both drinking yeah. wine now, yeah. <laughs> um... I mean, some wine connoisseurs might not agree with you, but we'll get into that. So why was this so bad? This was really, really bad because the Phylox era is notoriously difficult to study. They are so weird, so weird. I was reading this, like just screaming at my page of notes, like, what, what are you? How are you like this? <laughs> but basically it's life cycle is so weird. It starts out as a full generation of females. And then it's more females and then it's more females and then they all die and then it's more females and then they all die. And this happens for about a cycle of about a year. And then all of a sudden it's just a batch of only males or not only males, but some males. And all they do is just fuck and die. They don't even get an intestinal tract because they're not there to eat. They're there to have sex and get the females pregnant for the next complete generations of females. <laughs> so weird. I mean, insects are so weird. That is, that's pretty, that's pretty fucking crazy to think that like, it takes a full generation of females to create even a few males and then the males are still worthless. I mean, it sounds kind of similar to another world I know, but whatever. <laughs> You're going to get us hate mail already <laughs> by the first episode. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I, I love you. You can say whatever you want. This is a safe space here. Um... By the time that the phylox era was finally understood, most of France's wine industry was completely obliterated. It was bad news. Everyone was freaking out. They were like, what are we going to do? This was our entire economy. Like, it's France. It's France. What are they going to do without wine? Um, but then, you know, this, oh, I forgot to talk, the freaking phylox era. They also changed their habitat. They go from underground to up on the leaves on their galls but then they go down and attack the roots and it's like there's no pattern to where they're attacking and then their life cycle is so weird but then this guy named cv riley charles valentine thank you charles he comes in and he's like wait a minute i got this i understand this shit we can fix this so he starts taking he is um a british born american entomologist he moved to america he actually died in Washington, D.C. Um, he comes in and he's like, why don't we just splice the two? So they start splicing the hardy American vines with the thick grapes of the French vines and European vines. And lo and behold, he saves the wine industry. Yes. What a Thank you, fucking CB. champion. What a man. Also, fun fact, in his life, he published 2,400 publications. Wait, so wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. 2,400. Yeah, I don't even think I've tweeted that much. 
I mean, that's debatable, but <laughs> but I do know for a fact that 2,400 publications is a metric fuckton. That's amazing. Yeah. That's so wild. Yes. Definitely measured in metric fucktons. But yeah, so he solves it, and everyone's like, oh, thank God, you are the best. Um, and he was actually, in 1889, awarded the French Legion of Honor, which is apparently their highest recognition. They were like, oh, you brought our wine back. Thank you, sir. Um, yeah. And so he started shipping these uh, spliced grapevines all over. And by 1872, there were over 400,000 cuttings sent all over the world, wherever this was affected. Oh, happy ending. But uh, most connoisseurs are like, yeah, yeah, you know what? It did fine. Despite the setback, you know, it's fine. But I still want to have a pre-phylloxera wine. So if you're one of those people, which apparently there are a lot of them, you can actually still find them in places like Chile because there's little tiny pockets where missionaries um, brought French grapes there in the 16th century and they were just never touched by American grapes. So those still exist. But, you know, I don't know. Well, I think wine's pretty good. Now I feel like I just want to be a wine snob and go find one of those <laughs> wines because why not? I want to I want to taste some pre-Phyloxera <laughs> wines. That's fucking cool as shit. Listen, I can't taste the difference between $4 wine and $8 wine, but I want to know what pre-Phyloxera uh, wine mean, tastes like. <laughs> I feel like there can't be that much difference between $4 wine and $8 wine anyways. Maybe okay, like, fair. Maybe like First of all, $4 fair. wine and $80 <laughs> wine might have been a better comparison. Question, does this come out of a box? <laughs> <laughs> Bitch, where are you finding boxes for $8? I need to know. Uh, no, $8 per serving <laughs> at any bar you go to. Fair, fair, fair. fair. <laughs> so yeah, that was the Phyloxera. Um, good thing the wine industry was saved. Pretty stoked about that. Yeah, absolutely. As I said, on me? my rosé. Ooh, yeah, let me take a sip too. Mm, a little sippy sip. All right, I have... With my $4, $8 wine. <laughs> I have, as we are apparently, in my own words... Uh, quantifying things in metric fucktons. I'm about to download a metric fuckton of chestnut blight facts into your head right now. Oh, yes, please load it up. So the chestnut blight is pretty wild, too. Um, obviously, people eating chestnuts are probably not as in love with the chestnuts as people drinking their wine, so maybe not quite as popular as a thing that almost killed the wine vines but i do enjoy a chestnut from time to time and it's in the christmas songs yeah. i mean you can't have christmas songs without chestnuts yeah absolutely so uh i'm gonna start out by telling you just a little bit about the chestnut tree um so and to clarify we're talking about the american chestnut which is different from several other varietals of chestnut trees from around the world we're talking specifically about the american chestnut these things Back in the early 1900s and literally 40 million years prior to the early 1900s were some of the largest trees you would find in the northeastern to mid-eastern uh, Atlantic seaboard um, in the U.S. These things grew to be as large as 121 feet tall and 5 Whoa. feet in diameter. Whoa! Which is wildly massive like you could literally have four or five people standing on the inside of one of these trees without any trouble mm -hmm. super crazy 
Um, I mean, they might have some trouble if they're trying to stand inside the tree, but... Well, I mean, okay, standing on top of a stump of a cut-down <laughs> tree, let's clarify. Fair okay, enough, heard, heard, enough, heard, heard, enough. heard. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> um, and chestnuts in the U.S., back in, back in the times before the chestnut blight, were actually a super large part of the economy in the United States. Um, the financial structure, especially in the rural South, were very dependent upon chestnut nuts and the wood from um, logging chestnut trees. Chestnut wood itself is super rot resistant, so people were building cabins out of it, railroad ties out of it, and they were using the tree nuts as a was very common form of a bartering tool for rural Southern Americans. And um, mm. they also used the tree nuts to fatten up their meat animals. So it is an absolutely amazing tree. But unfortunately, around 1904, I'm just going to preface this by saying I'm only going to try and pronounce the scientific name of this blight once because it is a lot. <laughs> but, uh, I have to do those like Google sound things <laughs> for every single one I find. And even still, I'm like, I think I'm only 60% right, but I'm going to go gonna with try. it. I did do that as well. But, you know, even Google was like, I'm not really sure. <laughs> so uh, the, around 1904 in North America, uh, there was some um, Japanese chestnut trees moved into the U.S. for commercial purposes, the really pretty trees, and they were hoping to bolster the economy with the Japanese chestnut because they were using so much of the American chestnut. It seemed like a logical thing to bring another varietal in to try and bolster the usage. Yeah, chestnuts on you know? chestnuts. Um, yeah. And that's when Cryphonectria parasitica... Nailed it. Beautiful. ...was brought to the United States. Now, it is an absolutely crazy blight. It's fungal in nature and does some pretty wild things. But before we get into all the things that it does to the tree itself, um, I want to talk about this guy named Herman Merkel. Ooh, tell me about him. Herman Merkel was the first person who identified the blight itself. And now... Granted, he didn't know what was causing it. He just knew that the chestnut trees were dying. And so he worked at the Bronx Zoo back in the early 1900s, um, also known as the New York Zoological Garden. And he worked very hard at this place and really hated seeing all these chestnut trees starting to wilt and die. And he had no idea what was happening. So he goes in and he starts culling the diseased branches, you know, which is a very popular form of, like, uh, eradicating specific diseases, especially fungal diseases, because mm. usually if you cut off the source, it can't spread, and then you're done. That makes sense. Um, so he's, like, walking around the zoo, finding all these chestnut trees. They're, like, not happy. I love that he works in a zoo. He's like, I'm not even paying attention to the right? animals. I'm, I'm stoked I'm about on these, these trees. trees though. <laughs> I'm on these trees. <laughs> I mean, granted, he was a forester for the zoo. He wasn't actually working with the animals, but uh, I forgot oh, to say zoos that. Oh, foresters? I didn't even know yeah, that. I mean, That's so cool. is going to take care of all the trees, right? Okay, you know what? Like, I didn't even think about <laughs> it, okay? <laughs> but um, he sees that this is happening, and he actually requests $2,000. And granted, to remind you, this is in 1904. He requested $2,000 from the zoo 
to try and battle the spread of this disease. And just to give you an idea of how much money that was in that day, I used a uh, inflation calculator and $2,000 is the equivalent of $57,615.51 today. Damn, Herman, you're not getting that cash yeah. money. So, Sorry, bro. But crazy thing is, he did. They gave him no. the money. They gave they him cared the money. About trees back they then? gave him the money. They were super into it. Obviously, <laughs> oh, that's awesome. the chestnuts, like Good I job, said, Bronx were taking you. up a, a huge amount of uh, all oh, of the tree mm -hmm. life and forest yeah, life yeah. in that area. Mm -hmm. So he requests this money, they give it to him. So like I said, they do all the culling of the disease, Brett, uh, disease branches, and then they sprayed this thing called, called the Bordeaux solution, which would probably be super frowned upon today, but I mean, it's the early 1900s and you need, nobody knew the risk of pesticides. <laughs> back then it wasn't oh it really was studied. a pesticide yeah it's a, i thought it was a wine the bordeaux, the bordeaux they're just spreading right? wine all over it they're like this worked for the phylloxera <laughs> <laughs> but and it was actually used on grapevines that's something i was about oh, to say it was, it was to prevent grape mildew and it was used on a lot of fruit varietals to do this to the same effect and it's a mixture of copper sulfate and lime um mm. which i think is kind of cool but uh unfortunately even with all this money they had three men a day operating a 175-gallon tank walking around trying to treat these mature trees to prevent the spread of the fungus, but they could only treat four mature trees a day. Oof. And all the while, there are hundreds, literal hundreds of chestnuts on the grounds. So, like, no matter how hard they're working, whatever they're trying, they're just not going not going fast enough. They were, they pruned back disease branches from over 400 specimens. Most of them had to be carved down to just a bare trunk trying to prevent the spread of this. And Merkel even mm. knew the whole time he was working on it that the the real the realistic outcome was grim. Uh, and to quote him, he said, "Just how far we have checked the progress of the disease is a matter of conjecture until the growing season reveals the facts." Considering, mm. however, the ease with which the spores may be transferred by the action of wind or by squirrels, birds, insects, it is much feared that no permanent result will be achieved except by concerted action on the part of all park authorities in this borough. Mm. And he struggled to get everyone else in the surrounding areas to join in on trying to control this at, at its beginning. But. Yeah, like, I mean, could you imagine walking around back then being like, hey, yo, I know this is super expensive. It's like $54,000, but like the trees are awesome. We got to save them, you know, and he's probably like a plant nerd, too. So <laughs> I feel like if I had to convince people to spend that kind of money on trees, I would just like sweat myself and pass out. <laughs> but I mean, for real. So like the, the city itself wasn't taking this very seriously at all, which is unfortunate. And so they keep trying to take care of this and... Um, Merkel ends up getting together with a guy from the New York Botanical Garden, which is just north, at this point, is just north of the zoo. Um, and his name is Dr. William Alfonso Merle. Mm. And he was a mycologist, and he would, he had just, he'd literally just been hired as the assistant curator at the Botanical Garden. And so... Nobody else is getting into this. Nobody else is trying to fix it. He gets in touch with Merle, and Merle is like, oh, my God, this is awesome. 
<laughs> I'm super into it. And so Merkel sent samples into the USDA. USDA was like, dude, we don't fucking care about this. Why the why would we care about this? This is dumb. Don't care. And so that that's what initially led him to contact Merle. And then a Merle immediately went in and literally published several studies on the pathology of this fungal disease. Mm. And then at that point, unfortunately, it was a little bit too late. Yeah. So Bummer. it took literally so by 1908, so just four years later, the disease had caused millions of dollars in New York City, and no effective treatment methods had been discovered yet. Boo. So, and I'm, and this is millions of dollars in 1908. I did not do that conversion, but I cannot imagine yeah. the billions of dollars that would probably be today. Dang. And then by 1940, so just 40 years later, $3.5 billion and I did not misspeak, billion trees have been lost <gasps> to this disease. Oh, it's so, so heartbreaking. So in, in literally 40 years, the trees have been reduced to essentially nothing. So they're considered functionally extinct today. Oh. There are root clumps that still exist because for whatever reason, this fungal disease cannot move through the dirt, so it does not attack the roots at all. It's only It only attacks like uh trees as they come out of the ground so even in new york right now there's like over six million root clumps still in existence so we're like there's a possibility of bringing this tree back they're just hanging out Uh, there under people's feet yeah they're just hanging out and they like sprout every once in a (gasps) while and then the blight kills them oh which is unfortunate so like they keep trying they're trying real hard to come back but unfortunately the blight's a little bit stronger than they are Hmm. um maybe one day (laughs) But back to what you were talking about earlier with the regulations, um, the chestnut blight, along with other diseases like the wine blight, helped kind of start some of the first regulations on plant quarantines in the whole world. Um, So some of the, like the first call for international cooperation, like for many years, even before this, there were international congresses where you, where people would meet and talk about plants in their areas respectively, but there wasn't much cooperation over how they were interacting with each other when they were moved. So in 1890, 1891, there was this Swedish botanist named Jacob Erikson. who's really cool. He was one of the first that called attention to the need for international cooperation. And that actually happened at the International Congress for Agriculture and Forestry mm. in 1903. Or, I mean, in 1891. And then he did it again in Rome in 1903 at the same Congress. And there was an American named David Lubin who was also advocating at the same time. Long story short, this all led to the crazy start of, like, the international regulations. And the very first was the International Institute of Agriculture. And I and it started in 1905. And as just sort of a fun fact, I think... Uh, it's really cool that it was under the patronage of the king of italy so the king of italy funded the ability for agriculturalists around the world to come together and discuss international regulations about how plants can move around yeah that's that's all in 1905 which is mind-blowing to me nice we had people speaking for the trees (laughs) <laughs> but then we have the Plant Quarantine Act, and that's specifically the United States. And that was formed in 1912. So not to get too political, but 
United States seems to be behind in a lot of things a lot of time. <laughs> so didn't start until 1912. Once again, you're going to get us hate mail on the first episode. Dang, just I mean, saying I'm it I'm into you. it. Send me that hate. <laughs> I will talk to you about it. I'm into it. No, no, no. Give but, us uh, a five-star review, please. Don't listen <laughs> to him. Don't listen to him. We need the five stars. We're, we're, we're a baby podcast. <laughs> but um, it's it's been reformed year after year, the Plant Quarantine Act. Uh, so if you wanted to look it up today and how we are today protecting our plants and the... Uh, why am I losing my words? Trees. No, importation <laughs> of plants. Sorry. When, when we're talking like trees. Did you forget about, the like, word the for trees? Right? That would be terrible. But uh, when we're talking about like the importation of plants and uh, plant health across the United States, that all falls under the Plant Protection Act of 2000. And that established a government agency known as APHIS, which is the Animal Protection and Plant Health Inspection Service. Ooh, so many acronyms. So they kind of control the world, like not the world, but the United States uh regulations regarding importation of plants and how to tell if it's okay or healthy cool um and as with anything uh even in 1912 when they first established this there were lots of people that were angry that they were doing that because as with any governmental regulation a lot of the industry leaders were scared they were going to lose money because of new policies that could potentially prohibit them, prohibit them from importing things that they thought they should be able to import. Anyways, I'm going to stop nerding out super hard. On, <laughs> I love it. I love the nerd. On, on international regulations, and we're going to talk just a little bit about uh, the disease itself and what it actually does Ooh, to the yeah, plant. Yeah. Because you said it only attacks like above the ground, right? Right. So it doesn't attack the root systems at all, and I. And they're still doing a lot of research on this plant, and it's still kind of an enigma. So there's, like, not a huge amount known. I mean, there's enough known to know, like, some prevention methods and what it does, but there's not enough known to actually stop the spread of the fungus yet. But the disease itself is most often noticed in younger trees, and it's because you can actually see the orange color of the fungus pushing through the epidermis of the tree, which is kind of like if you wanted to relate it to something a bit more personal, it's like think of the epidermis of your skin. Like if you're getting a tattoo, you can see that color on your skin because it sticks in the epidermis. Mm, So it's the same with trees. The fungus forms under there and has a very bright orange presenting color. The worst tattoo. (laughs) Right? The worst tattoo. Absolutely. Because it will kill you. But... (laughs) um, so it usually gets noticed in younger trees, but that doesn't mean that it's not still attacking the older trees. So usually when you see it in the older trees, it's because uh, the trees develop cankers, which is just really unfortunate. Mm. And the cankers are actually the tree trying to save itself. So this fungus attacks the tree and then it surrounds itself around the entire tree wherever it starts to attack. It goes full circumference around the tree and then attacks the xylem essentially which if you aren't familiar with the xylem and plants the xylem is what allows water to flow from the roots of the tree or any plant to its canopy or whatever branches whatever that's like what allows water to freely move so 
essentially it surrounds this tree, cuts off its water supply, uses it for itself, and then... <sighs> fuck it, freeloader. Right, exactly. <laughs> Parasitic as fuck. Get your own water. We pay rent here in the zoo. Right. <laughs> um, but as soon as that happens, obviously you're going to start seeing wilting in the crown of the tree because uh, it's not getting any water. And then it's going to defoliate the tree. And some diseases, even if the tree fully defoliates, it can come back because they store a lot of energy in their roots, especially mature trees. Mm. Unfortunately, as it attacks the xylem, there's also no way for the tree to recover from even the first defoliation because mm. there's no way for it to transport anything. Boo. So absolutely terrible way to die it's like if you like if you had to sit there without water for what is it seven days you can live without water oh, no, thank same you. same kind of thing except it's a tree and they can last for months so why don't we just like awesome. get water bottles for all of the trees and we just pour it on it <laughs> and if she's thirsty why don't we just give her water <laughs> right oh. i wish it worked that easily i wish but... it did too poor chestnuts but yeah, so that's essentially the way the fungus works. So it attacks the xylem, kills it, then the tree dies, and then there's no way for the tree to nourish itself. And then they develop cankers right below where the fungus has attacked, and that's the tree trying to save itself. Hmm. So it'll send out new shoots from underneath where the fungus has grown. But as soon as that happens, the fungus envelops the new shoot and does the same thing. So mm. essentially, if it's above ground, there's absolutely no way for the tree to save itself. <sighs> yeah, absolutely. Damn, we should have done mine terrible. second because at least mine ends on a good note. Jeez. Oh, right. <laughs> In this real depressing. Like, yeah. And then it um, basically starves to death. The end. <laughs> But uh, let's talk. Let's talk just shortly about some potential happy endings. There's okay, not okay. one currently, okay. But there are some methods that are being studied, and we're trying to reap the benefits of potentially reintroducing the American chestnut back into the market and back into nature. Um, if you yourself are trying to grow a chestnut tree, you could use a method called mud packing and unfortunately it's very ineffective when you're dealing with an entire grove of trees mm. but it's very effective if you're dealing if you can catch it early and are dealing with your own stand and are willing to put in the work mm. so mud packing is exactly what it sounds like you take soil from surrounding areas around the tree you find the cankers or if it's a younger tree the orange shooting through this through the epidermis and you mud pack around that area mm. and that stops like i said for some reason the fungus isn't able to move through the soil so that stops the fungus from moving and then anytime you see that canker or orange popping up on the tree you put a mud pack on that area and it prevents the fungus from spreading so if you were trying to grow your own chestnut trees american chestnut trees that would be a way of preventing your stand from being damaged but I mean, just the way it sounds, it's very labor-intensive and ineffectual on larger stands of trees. Yeah, but that sounds pretty cool, though. It's like, okay, the solution is to give your trees a mud bath, and then they'll be fine. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, who doesn't love a mud bath? Yeah. Okay, we can't give her water, but we can pamper her in another way. <laughs> right. Um, 
But there is a very promising thing on the forefront of science. And actually, just to give you a little bit of a sneak peek, this will play into my Mm. talking points for episode number two as well. Love it. Love it. Lead us in. But the most promising method discussed currently is hypovirulence. So just like we are susceptible to viruses, so are funguses. Mm. Viruses can attack anything that are multi-celled. So yeah. so uh they're working they're working on developing a virus that is communicable but only applicable to the chestnut blight fungus itself. Mm. Um so so it wouldn't spread. They're working that out. Exactly. So it's not going to spread to other plants or anything else that it could possibly damage or hurt the ecosystems around gotcha. it. But it would kill this particular fungus that is kind of fucking up the ecosystem itself, you hey. know? Um, but it's, a, it's I mean, it's. I'm not going to say it's a relatively new, because it's really not that new. But it is a relatively new way to try and deal with the chestnut blight itself. So while they're working on it, hasn't really gotten there yet. But we have hope that that method will in the future be a, be a light at the end of the tunnel for the chestnuts. And that kind of plays back into when I was talking about the root clumps before. There, are, Like I said, there are over 60 million root clumps, and those are going to be vital for the potential revival of the American oh, chestnut. So cool. And it would be really awesome. And there's super, like, obviously there's several benefits that I've already spoke spoken of, like the rot-resistant wood, if we were to use it in lumber markets. Um, being able to use the nut crop again would also be really awesome. And chestnut trees are really cool, so they start producing nuts after five years of growth. So even as an immature tree, they're producing uh, nut crops, which is pretty crazy. Most trees are not like that. They usually take like a decade to get mature enough to actually produce a crop. And then, of course, there's also the increase of biodiversity in our eastern forests. A, A portion of the biodiversity was assumed to be lost forever with the chestnut blight. And we're working very hard to bring a functionally extinct tree back to life. And honestly, that'd just be super fucking cool. That is cool. so cool. I, that would be so cool. And they're such pretty trees too. Oh, could you imagine just seeing them again everywhere? Oh, that'd be so awesome. I mean, seeing them again everywhere. And then in a hundred years, we'd have trees. I mean, not quite as big, but similarly sized to the, uh, God, I just lost my fucking words again. I hate tree. Like the answer is tree. Um, <laughs> the answer is tree, but it's a specific kind. Oh, the redwoods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the redwoods are taller, but they're not as thick yeah. in general as a chestnut tree. So in a hundred years from now, you could see chestnut trees. Like your our grand grandchildren, great great grandchildren. I don't know how many how long the, it takes to produce that, but uh, but the babies. <laughs> could potentially see massive stands of chestnut trees again so cool there is hope everyone hashtag bring back there the american chestnut we did it we did our first podcast episode thank you all yeah. so much for joining us 
we, so much fun. We can't wait to I see you super, next. Super excited. Yeah, we love talking about plants, and we love, and I bet if you're here too, you also love hearing and talking about plants. So I mean, you're not gonna pick up a podcast called Propagate yeah. Podcast <laughs> if you're not interested in hearing something. About Sorry, plants. babe, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> this is all plant and plant adjacent. We're starting off with some blights, but we're gonna talk about probably some more fun things after that. But we wanted to start with stuff that really really interests us so but even though frankie said you're in the wrong place are you though if you made it yeah this you made it all bar, the way to the end you are a plant person you now might as well keep fucking listening hit the next button follow us on instagram at propagated podcast <laughs> follow us on twitter propagated podcast uh send us a gmail propagated podcast at gmail.com uh give us a five-star review wherever you're listening because as a baby podcast it means the world to us and we would love you forever and and I want to make it known that even though we are focusing our first few episodes on some tragic stuff that's happening in the plant world, we're also available and happy to talk to you about any of your plants at home. Absolutely. And we intend to, in the future, address some of the issues that you might be seeing in your plants at home. Mm -hmm. So if you want to send us a message on the Gmail uh we do this for fun just propagated podcast at gmail yeah. we'll be happy to try and answer any plant questions you have this is fun for us even if we haven't discussed it in the podcast yet so hit us up we're here and we're excited and we're gonna keep going with yeah. this and we hope you guys will keep tuning in thank you so much for joining us goodbye bye guys